Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Hey, Carol, how's it going? It is just, it's going amazing, Matt. The, the economy is just rolling. It's booming. I feel so great about everything. Um, yeah, it's been a good time. This, um, I mean, if, if nothing else, the, uh, the tragic state of the economy and the, the, the sheer stupidity of public policy gives those of us that criticize government actions as either evil or stupid a lot to chew on, right? It does. It does. And it sort of vindicates uh, many of the things that we're, we've been talking about in some of these, you know, we believe in unicorns that fart rainbows kinds of policies that we've all been saying that these don't work. Now we actually have real data to point to because we were told, oh, no, it's going to be different this time. And guess what? It is not different this time. Yeah, it's like it's like Charlie Brown in the football. Like, honestly, next time. I'm not going to pull the rug out from under you, but it still happens. Well, there's so much to talk about, and uh, um, I think we should probably start with a little bit about your background. You're new to the show. I've been I've been following you for a couple years. Um, I love your perspective as a uh, recovering bankster. Um, that may not be exactly the phrase you use, but why don't why don't you give us a little bit of background as to as to where you come from and and I'm also sort of curious what's your what was that moment when you said as an investment banker wow the system's kind of rigged the system's kind of messed up this is not what it's supposed to be it's a great question um so I'm kind of you know, blue collar heart and Ivy League education that's sort of uh, you know I was the first person in my family to graduate from college my dad was an electrician I got myself into Wharton and ended up, you know, coming out and this is the mid nineties with $40,000 of college debt and said, okay, I've got to pay this down as quickly as possible. What is it that I can do in order to do that? And at Wharton, there were sort of two different paths. People who liked to really deep dive into something became management consultants and people who had ADD became investment bankers because we could work on a lot of deals at one time. Um, so I was in an area called corporate finance. And basically, I helped companies that were growing, lots of companies that you would know, Cheesecake Factory, the largest franchisee of Papa John's Pizza, Twin Lab, if you guys were supplement people back in the day, you know, those kinds of companies, I helped them to raise capital so they could that you could they could grow their business and you could patronize them. So if you have a cheesecake factory near you, um, apologies that I may have had a role in terms of your gaining weight there, but you know, we helped grow the the company. We helped the company enable um be able to expand. And so at that time, I didn't realize that, you know, in these sort of broader Wall Street community that there were issues. It was before the Fed kind of went off the rails in terms of policy. It wasn't something we ever really talked about in terms of markets. Um, it was just a very different time and I was in a very different role. So I didn't really think anything of it. Um, but I did end up leaving investment banking, one, because I never really wanted to be the world's best investment banker. It was just a place to, to learn and to gain some financial flexibility. And I also you know, had this experience where small businesses would call all the time and they'd be getting this terrible advice and asking me questions. And I'm like, you know, you couldn't even afford the retainer to hire our bank. So is there a way that I could 
maybe leverage media or do something else to get information to smaller guys, you know, the people who are more like where I came from at scale. And that's where all of this craziness sort of started. So was there was there a specific moment when you said um, the system seems fundamentally rigged for the big guys to, to go to Washington, D.C. and 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 game the rules at, at for their benefit at the expense of smaller guys and startups and, and that people are trying to get into the, the profit making system? I think it was really sort of a slow build, you know, it was like a peeling back of the onion um, as I started doing more commentary on financial TV, as I started learning about the Federal Reserve System, you know, from a practical sort of standpoint, not from an academic standpoint, um, you know, through the Great Recession, financial crisis, and all of the Fed decisions that came after that, I just found myself always at odds. I'm, I'm a person who's very deeply rooted in common sense. And when things don't connect, I'm always like, you know, that's, it's just not computing. That doesn't make sense. Like, explain it to me. And when people can't explain it to me, I'm like, okay, there's probably something wrong here. So I just, there were a lot of those moments, you know, leading up to the Great Recession financial crisis where I'm like, this, this just doesn't make sense. I couldn't necessarily put my finger on what it was. And so really it's been sort of, you know, I would say cumulative knowledge versus that one aha moment, so to speak. Were, were, were you still in um, the banking industry during the Wall Street bailout? So I guess technically I I had my own broker dealer, but I wasn't sort of, you know, act, I was doing more private mergers and acquisitions. So I wasn't, I was kind of adjacent to it and I wasn't really doing as much commentary. I, I got kind of pulled in, um, you know, to, to business commentary, you know, kind of at the, the, the middle tail end of that. And then the political commentary actually came about when Mitt Romney won the Republican nomination against President Obama because they needed somebody to explain what private equity was. Because at, at that time, you know, the average person hadn't heard of, you know, what's a private equity firm? Like, what's Bain Capital? Like, what, what does this mean? And so we had had the auto bailouts and we had had Romney and, and there was just sort of a need for someone to be able to break that down in a way that hadn't sort of entered the political discourse before. So I got sort of swooped into that. And then that's really when I started kind of putting the broader perspective together. So I'm going to tell you a story. So I'm, I'm picking on you as a, a recovering bankster. But, <laughs> I love it. Bankster it makes it sound like a gangster. <laughs> well, it feels more and more that way. And this, this is like part of my story because I'm, I'm actually a recovering economist who um, in the early 1990s was the uh, director of budget policy for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And, and I naively thought when I took that job as a very young economist that the Chamber of Commerce represented, as their logo would say at the time, the spirit of enterprise. The little guy. And so it's it's 1992, 1993. Uh, Bill Clinton has won the presidency, and Hillary Clinton has come up with this this vast scheme to um, create a government-run healthcare system. And I, as the budget guy, I was in charge of saying, guys, this this massive new entitlement will explode the budget, and will be a disaster for the economy. 
Um, in that process, I discovered that the policymaking process at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, even though the membership was primarily small guys, was really dominated by a handful of corporations that, that in this particular case, controlled healthcare policy within the chamber. And that's when I sort of had my, my awakening and, and discovering, I already knew this as, as someone that has studied public choice theory, but I, I quickly discovered that the primary purpose of corp corporate America in Washington, D.C. was to shift their costs onto somebody else, in this case, small business and the employer mandate. And perhaps they would even benefit from that by creating barriers to entry, um, you know, what, what economists call regulatory capture. And so I'm, I'm, I find myself, um, after the pandemic, starting to sound a little bit like, um, like a um, socialist. When I talk about the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer, and corporate America ripping off the little guy. It's it's a confusing time, but I, I think I, I learned early on, and certainly during the Wall Street bailout, that 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 policy um, in corporate America is very much in cahoots with government. And I don't know if government drives corporate policy or corporate policy is very much driving the government's desire to to further regulate and destroy small businesses. But I think that's that's what your book is all about, I suspect. Yeah, it's really um, a core tenet of it. I'm the same way, I'm a, a free marketeer at heart, but what we have in terms of this unholy triumvirate between the government's big business and big special interests is nothing like a free market. It really is more of these public-private partnerships or you know, central planning, as I like to call it, because I don't like to fight with people over terms. Like I don't care <laughs> you know, what spe special name you want to attach to it. Like It all kind of ends up the same. It's the principle of it. And um, yeah, I mean, if you think about the economy and you sort of draw, you know, draw a line down the middle before COVID, about half the GDP and about half the jobs are in the hands of what's now like 32.6 million small businesses. And the other half is concentrated in just over 20,000 big businesses. So in terms of those that have the scale and the money and sort of you know being useful to governments, lobbying dollars, campaign dollars and whatnot, and then, you know, kind of the you can scratch our backs and you create a, a situation where we get wealthier and, and we create this, you know, weird stratification of the economy. Um, you know, that's that's how you can view it is that the, the 20,000 are very easy to deal with and, and rich with cash versus trying to corral 32.6 million like free spirited small businesses like it's just never going to happen. And so breaking it down that way sort of made everything that happened after that much more clear in terms of its deliberation um, or deliberateness, I guess uh, one might say, and, you know, the, the outcomes that we're still you know, struggling with today. Yeah. The, let's, um, let's break it down because you've, you've, you've come up with a great litany of, of assaults on small business that started with the lockdowns, and and I, I should point out um, that the the entire concept of of locking down the economy comes uh, is borrowed directly from the the Chinese Communist government, and and it apparently is a long tradition in China, uh, even preceding communism, but it's it's a it's a fundamentally authoritarian sort of anti-economic logic, anti-human freedom, and 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 I, I think unhuman 
sort of policy, but in, in, in the case of small business, um, they, they were uniquely targeted by this, this, this radical experiment in, in virus mitigation. Yeah, it was an interesting conversation that I had with my husband in about February 2020 before COVID became a thing here. It was a big thing in, in China. And uh, at that point in time, I got OG COVID. I, you know, it was before anybody knew that it was a thing and, you know, did my tour for a couple of weeks. But my husband and I said, well, you know, if this becomes like a bigger thing here, like, you know, what, like just fun thought experiments, like what would they do? Would they lock things down for a couple of weeks? Would they do this? Would they do that? And we were like just completely baffled by the idea of a lockdown. We're like, there's just no way that people would comply with a lockdown. Like you just couldn't do that. That's not an option. So, you know, we continued on our discussion and that was probably the biggest shock to me. But in retrospect, the way that they did it was very clever. They locked down a third about of the economy and it was heavily those small businesses, many of which that are consumer facing, that didn't have the political clout and connection. So this was something that was based on that clout versus data and science. And then they used that to you know, pick winners and losers and decide who was going to thrive and who was going to have to fight to survive. They got to say, hey, look, we did something. And you know, throughout the process, they were able to affect the most historic transfer of wealth that we've ever seen from Main Street to Wall Street, you know, all under the guise of, you know, somehow we're all in this together, when it was very clear we were not. We were labeled essential or non-essential, all by mandate, none of which made any sense. You know, I, I'm from Illinois, as you might be able to tell from my Chicago Blackhawk sweatshirt. And, um, you know, we had weed dispensaries that weren't even legal a couple of years prior that were now all of a sudden essential, but a mom and pop, you know, selling something and supporting their family was non-essential. It just, just fundamentally was, you know, not data based in any way, shape or form. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. Well, it, pre presumably it was all political influence uh, com combined with some random stupidity um, those two right. things are Peppered pretty in. toxic. Peppered in for a little taste, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I, I would assume, like I, maybe it's um, just uh, particularly in Chicago and other big blue cities. Uh, maybe weed is sort of a, a religious thing that that can't be touched. But but it's no, also it's, it's, a, it's a driver of state income. Is basically yeah. you know they heavily tax it, so they they didn't want to take away a lot um, of revenue. You know, their, their their revenue. No, they would they wouldn't want to touch that. Yeah, but that the the same way like when when I was having that same conversation with with my wife in February and March of 2020, I being the economics dork was thinking about the supply chain and 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 Frederick Bastiat and and weird things like that. And what I didn't appreciate, like, because and I had the same assumption, like they couldn't possibly do that because you can't just shut off the economy because people would. People would literally starve to death if you shut down the supply chain. Um, and it turns out that they they were going to pick and choose the winners and losers and the essential and the non-essential. 
And another driver, perhaps, is um, the needs of the laptop class. So like the people that could work from home, uh, starting with government and, and certainly uh, big corporations would, would fit into this category as well. They, of course, desperately needed um, access to hospitals. So the, uh, essential hospital workers had to work. They also needed um, their Uber driver to deliver their Uber Eats. So they still needed some semblance of a food um, chain from from farmer to, to table, even though they have no conception of of the many millions of pieces to that puzzle. So I was thinking, um, surely they know they can't do this, but then they did this this sort of politically driven, half baked version of it, and and as a result, we're now feeling the consequences today in a way that we didn't feel in 2020. I th I thought things would shut down quicker, but it turns out they they weren't really shutting down everything. Yeah, it was it was this kind of like picking and choosing. And once that started to happen, um, I started raising some of the questions that you had was like, you know, this isn't a modem, like you can't power cycle it. It's not like you turn it off and turn it back on. Like you're going to cause massive disruption and dislocation. Um, and then, you know, they start throwing stimulus on top of that and, and more Fed money printing. And it was just so clearly a recipe for disaster. And I actually, you know, gave nods to all of these things, you know, in the war on small business as I was chronicling it and talked about this with, you know, many folks, um, including folks like Jesse Kelly, who, you know, were all very early on going that this is a disaster, like we need to stop this right now. And to hear the, you know, quote unquote, expert class say, oh, well, like, we didn't know this was going to disrupt supply chains. We didn't know this was going to disrupt labor markets. Like, well, I was able to figure that out. So why are you getting paid $7 million for economic speeches? And I'm not, because either you're a liar or you have no idea what's going on. And either of those outcomes are bad because you're in charge of trillions of dollars worth of decisions. Well, I, I could go down this rabbit hole of, of how, um, you know, the professional planners, the the PhDs in economics and all of these experts, um, they're, they're self-selected for their pretense and their willingness to pretend that they know things that they don't know because the, the, the attraction to policymakers is they want. They want a government solution to everything. So almost by definition, it doesn't matter if it's Republican or Democrat, the, the people that sit in those positions are willing to make grandiose claims about what they know that if, if they actually studied their own profession of economics, they would know that they don't know nearly as much as they claim to. Yeah, and I think a lot of them are also put in place to justify an outcome versus figure out what the likely outcome is. So, you know, here's the outcome we're solving for. Let's figure out what data set might get us close to that outcome. And so they're just working backwards rather than actually taking in the information real time and, and raising their hands and going red flag, this isn't going to work. And you know, that's just, again, the, the unfortunate situation when you do have central planning and you do have these big entities who are trying to quote unquote, be smart and, uh, and make decisions and, and control things that you know, millions of people could do better individually. So th this gets into your your fundamental critique, but it, it seemed obvious that it was a perfect storm for a recession and inflation when when the government policy was basically two things. Um, you're you're uh, damaging the supply chain 
and you're you're stopping the production of many key essentials that that feed into other things that we desperately need. You're you're literally forcing people to stay home, and then you're showering upon them stimulus checks. So you're suppressing supply and you're stimulating demand at the same time. What could possibly go wrong with that? Well, and then that's the part that's so frustrating is you know, these people who are saying like, oh, well, you know, we didn't know. If you go back to just the American Rescue Plan, like forget about all the stuff that happened in 2020, which we can dissect. But in 2021, you know, when the everything was opening up, you had the vaccine, they have this American Rescue Plan and they are issuing something called stimulus checks. Like stimulating is actually in the name of the checks. So to come out and to say, oh, we didn't know that stimulus checks were going to stimulate an economy, and oh, we didn't know because it was a supply-constrained economy, it was going to be even worse. I mean, that's just, I mean, you take like any 10-year-old off the street and they can figure that out in five minutes. You know, that this is not complicated stuff. And so it's frustrating to, you know, kind of hear the people dance around things and then, you know, continue on to claim that they have any idea what's going on going forward or act as if they're not bad actors, because I do think that there's a mix of, of you know, both of those. That there are some folks that are bad actors that have sort of nefarious intentions, and I think they're the useful idiots. And in a sense, it doesn't really matter because the outcome is the same. Yeah, like I, uh, it's, it's, it seems more and more that the intentions are bad. And I'm, I'm as, a, as a student of of, of perverse and political incentives, I, I, I can make an argument as to why nobody had bad intentions and they're just doing what they do. Um, you know, they're, they're pretending they know how to do things they don't know, do. They're expanding their budgets. They're paying off their friends through the PPP loans that are going to insiders instead of actual small businesses. You, you can make a more benign argument, but by, as you just pointed out, and I hadn't really thought this. I've, I've been very critical of, of the Trump administration for all the mistakes they made in 2020. But by 2021, there was plenty of indications that doing more of the same and doubling down as the Biden administration has done is just digging such a deep hole. Um, there, there, there really isn't a defense for that anymore. No, and I'm in the same uh, the same vein as you. You know, the, the war on small business really covers mostly 2020 and what happened, because obviously at some point you have to wrap the book up and put it out there. Would have loved to continue, but editors don't like that kind of thing. And uh, I also am very critical of the Trump administration and the decisions that they made. And there is no doubt that they own a piece of what has happened. Um, you know, whether it was the the stimulus and the spending or the encouraging of the Fed to, you know, continue on with their quote unquote emergency actions, which, you know, by June of 2020, the stock market had hit all time highs. Obviously, that's nowhere near an emergency situation, yet they kept you know, marching forward in the, in the situation. But by the time Biden came into office, it was a completely different game. And so he knew exactly what he was doing and he was fulfilling in many ways his campaign promises, you know, coming in day one and canceling oil and gas leases and the Keystone XL pipeline and whatnot. I mean, that's what he campaigned on. And we knew what was going to happen from that to get basic supply and demand. Um, and then this whole ridiculous American rescue plan, which not only had the stimulus, but also snuck in there, which nobody was paying attention to, was the provision that kicked in January 1st of this year, 
that if you have $600 of e-commerce transactions, you are now going to trigger a reporting event to the IRS instead of the previous 20,200 transaction threshold, which then they came out and claimed was supposed to be to, to keep billionaires honest and make sure they're paying their fair share because you know all those billionaires on Etsy selling $600 worth of stuff, we gotta make sure that that's accounted for. That's how we're gonna get our money. So there were, yes, the, the, the intentional decisions that were made under Biden were even less excusable because the, the backdrop of the situation was different. But, you know, everybody got their Donnie dollars. We have to have Biden bucks too. Can't have just the Republicans giving away money. And then you get in a situation where now they're using what happened, which again, is, was a disaster in 2020 and 2021 and not normalizing that data. And I don't know if this, you know, makes you as angry as it makes me, but as somebody who spent my life with models and building models and looking at data sets, when there is something that's extraordinary, you pull that data out to normalize the data set. You don't let that, that weird thing kind of skew the whole data. And so the idea that they're gonna run a $1.4 trillion deficit, which is 44% higher than what it was in 2019 for this fiscal year that wraps up this month and say that they're reducing the deficit because they had this like weird, you know, COVID emergency relief money just like makes me want to punch somebody. Yeah. Like as a, as a former budget guy, the, the, the abuses of, of data, um, it gets worse all the time, but um, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of, of the Biden administration crowing about how they had eliminated inflation um, a couple months ago because there had been a slight downtick. Can you even explain, like, um, is it this isn't current services budgeting where, um, like, in, in my world, if you um, project that the budget is going to grow by 20% and you cut that current services projection to 18%, you're saving money. Right. But that's, I, I, did, I, did, I couldn't comprehend, I, mean, I cannot comprehend their math on the inflation thing. Yeah, no, that we had a scenario where the month to month increase in inflation was flat. So somehow that translated to we have no inflation. And, uh, you know, it obviously that came to you know, bite him in the behind when that shifted in our, our most recent report again. So I, I just I don't even understand the tenor of that. I mean, people people don't need to see the CPI report, right? They can just go to the grocery store. They're looking at that bill. They're feeling real pain in their family. And so the idea to try to gaslight people to tell them that the economy is great and that inflation has been tamed, like I'm just not even sure what the end game is there. I would have so much more respect if they were just honest about it and saying, hey, you know, we're going to try some stuff and you know, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work. But to, to just kind of like dismiss the real pain that the average American is feeling is doubly cruel. What did, well, how did, I'm going to butcher George Orwell, but he said that, you know, the party demands that you ignore the evidence of your eyes and your ears. And you could go back to James Carville, who, who so um, accurately said it's the economy stupid when they were taking on George H.W. Bush. Um, and I, I, I feel like when you say that this is the strongest economy um, in forever, I forget how exactly they said it, or that we were actually um, zero inflation, um, 
people, you're right, people don't look at a CPI. They don't even know what the CPI is, but they know that the food that they're trying to feed their family with is, is a hell of a lot more expensive. And, and they know that, you know, even though gas prices have gone down somewhat, they know that it's a hell of a lot more than it was last year. And so when the Biden, when the president says uh, there's no inflation or when the president says the economy's strong, they're like, either he's lying to me or he's, he's an, an idiot. idiot. Or both. Yeah, maybe maybe both. We're not sure. So it, it, it felt like stupid politics um, to me to even do that instead of saying, wow, folks, this is a big problem and we need to we need to deal with it, even if their their solutions are doubly stupid, like the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, I mean, this entire administration, they're full of lying liars who lie. And it just, you know, it's very frustrating. There was a full thing that um, I had kind of uncovered a few months back, which was about the rate of, of tax that billionaires pay. And some statistic that, like, if you were a billionaire, you only paid 8% on your income. And as, you know, somebody who is looking to look at every legal way to save money, I'm like, oh, 8%. Like, that's amazing. Like, how do I get in on this sweet deal? Like, what kind of investment? Because, like, my accountants never told me anything that even, like, approximates anything in a single digit. So I'm really curious as to how they were able to do this. And you go and you look at the pa- the white paper, which is on the White House website, like out there officially, and they just made up, they looked at everybody's unrealized capital gains at a point in time when the market was doing really well, and they approximated, oh, this is how much wealth they had, and if we were taxing them based on wealth, not income, this is how much they're paying, and it's like, okay, like we're now conflating all kinds of things. You're lying to people, you're creating a huge hubbub, and this is intentional and deliberate. Like this isn't just stupidity. This is literally what they're trying to build something out and it's a fundamental lie. And we've caught them in so many of these fundamental lies, but because politics really has become this you know, pseudo religion and sport, People are willing to go to bat for their teams, no pun intended, um, and, and take whatever you know data points they want out of context to try to make an argument instead of taking a step back, going like, "This is bad." Like we don't, you know, nobody wants to have a bad economy. Like th- th- there are certain things we should all pretty much agree on. We're all at the end of the day the Green Party. We care about the green, the dollars in our pockets, right? So um, it's it's pretty distressing when you do kind of run into that level of pushback because they put out, you know, some sort of a a meme or a list that says something, even though it's completely not accurate. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Key Beyond Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. Yeah, so like maybe one of the upsides of this is to 
is to finally get uh, Americans to pay a little more attention to fiscal policy. And I, I say that um, as someone that, that tried first as a budget economist and then as a grassroots advocate to get, get people to worry about, about overspending and the implications of that. And, and we all know that there's only three ways that the government can spend money it doesn't have. It can raise taxes, which it loves to do, but there are limits on how many taxes you can raise. It can borrow. Um, but there's even limits on borrowing. And the, and the third um, option, which is the most pernicious, which you've talked about extensively, is that the government and the Federal Reserve can expand the supply of money and credit, making, making the dollars in our savings accounts and our wallets worth less and less. And, and it feels like, um, I don't know what we're at now. We've spent like six or eight trillion dollars. I can't actually keep up with how much money we've spent over the last couple of years um, that's all being monetized by the Fed, right? It is. I mean, if you think about, you know, people don't necessarily understand what that means, but if you think about all of this money that they wanted to spend on COVID relief, it's not like there was demand from foreign buyers or investors to say, oh, yeah, we've got like several trillion dollars lying around. We really want to buy your uh, your government bonds. And so, yeah, the Fed stepped in as the buyer completely, you know, uh, it artificially manipulated the market, and then you put that right on their balance sheets, and then obviously that's a big driver of the currency debasement that we're seeing. So I've got sort of the tally of the outlays here because I keep I reference this all the time. It's really sad. I have this uh, easily accessible on my phone. So in 2020, just over six and a half trillion, and in 2021, 6.8 trillion. And then the sad part about this is that because of inflation and the fact that they haven't changed around the tax code, they're actually going to collect $4.4 trillion in revenue projected this year, which is a trillion more than just 2019. I mean, that's staggering if you think about it. If we just went back to the 2019 spending, we would be break even. And if we roll back to 2018 level of spending, just you know, four short years ago, we'd have a $300 billion surplus that we could use to start paying down the debt based on that level of receipts. And they're still planning to spend for the fiscal year $5.85 trillion. And that doesn't include all of these wonderful spending packages that we've been seeing that are just going to continue to raise the, the amount of spending and, and they go forward years. And they just do not care. So you've you've uh, um, you you wrote a piece uh, uh, yesterday or today, um, I believe the title was "The Fed's Gonna Fuck It Up." <laughs> that, that that was the title. <laughs> but I but I feel like the title should have been "The Fed Has Already Fucked It Up," yeah, and I, I wish I, they I would stop. Well. <laughs> um, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> what's your uh, what's your what's your view of the Federal Reserve? Um, as as sort of a, a person that's looking at this from a very practical level, because I'm sure I'm not the first one to mention that you, you sound a little bit like Ron Paul, although he'd never dropped the F-bomb. And I know that the actual article had those little things that 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 cover up the word. But uh, um, yeah, it, it, I'm, a, I'm a little bit more like, you know, part J-Lo and part Milton Friedman. But I'll take the Ron Paul, uh, you know, comparison any day. <laughs> Um, well, let's take all three. But, uh, um, you know, part of part of my concern, like that the Fed is actually looked upon 
as as an entity that can solve all of our problems. They can eliminate unemployment. Um, they can create price stability, which is their so-called mandate. But but shouldn't their job be to not debauch the currency? Yeah, I mean, I personally don't think that this should be a job. Um, I think that's the fundamental issue. And the problem I have with people who say we need to end the Fed is we actually need to end what the Fed is doing. Because if that sort of function goes and becomes a function of Congress, like there, there's only one thing that would be worse than the Fed doing this, and it would be Congress doing this. Um, you know, it, I think it was Milton Friedman and his K percent rule that used to say, you know, all we need to do is just say that the money supply expands, you know, in relation to the expansion and the GDP, you know, some, something like that. So tie, tie it to productivity as it should be. You don't need a Federal Reserve to do that. right? <laughs> that can just be done. Yeah, pretty straightforward at this point in time. And I'll ask you as the economist, but I'm not sure that we ever need to expand the money supply again. Like I, I feel like we, we, the amount that we've done, you know, outside of productivity, like it, we, we could just at this point just say it's over and we should never do it again. I don't know that we'll ever catch up to it. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I, yeah, I would, I would uh, agree with that. And I would go a step further and I've always, um, I've always thought that fears of, of, of deflation, particularly when you, you have the currency uh, directly linked to a commodity like gold, were, were grossly overstated because I think, I think a predictable sh uh, deflation would be something that we could very much adapt to. Um, but the inflation and the uncertainty caused by inflation and the way that the money is injected into the economy in, in various ways that, that benefit um, um, insiders like investment banks is 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 far more corrupting, and I'm I'm sort of, sort of of an Austrian perspective on this. I, th I think um, the business cycle and the the rash of of failure caused by inflation is is not a market phenomenon at all. So I I, I would go further and say I, I do I do think we should end the Fed, but I also think that the government should get out of the currency business because I think the market would do a better job. I, I agree. I agree. Um, assuming that, you know, again, we put the guardrails in place that it can't be bastardized in some way that, you know, it's it's been when we have other things that are supposed to be free market and end up being, you know, usurped by government policy. Um, but it's a it's a challenging situation. The U.S. Census Bureau just came out with their income and poverty report. And, you know, it turns out that inequality um, now is the at the highest level that it's been since uh, post-World War II, I think it is. And, you know, this is inequality that's happening, not by merit, not because somebody's out-competed somebody in the market or has, you know, worked many more hours or, you know, enhanced productivity, but purely by mandate. And the Fed, you know, acting as the you know, monetizer for the government, allowing their bad behavior and their bad spending and all the things that they have done that have artificially tipped the scales in favor of Wall Street and the elite and the big businesses. You know, that is your driver, the primary driver of you know, mandated inequality, you know, not something that was merit based, but something that was given you know, by this mandate, whether directly or indirectly. Yeah. And I, and I, I think, um, I mean, this, this is a challenge for those of us that believe in free markets, because I, I don't think 
that the market process, when it's not corrupted by politics, actually leads to um, increased inequality. I think I think it's it's a great way to lift people out of poverty. It's a great equalizer. Um, there's a great series of books by Deirdre McCloskey that talks about about how it is, and 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 she calls it innovism, um, which is just um, democratizing innovation, um, lifts people out of poverty. And you you can look at you know the World um, Bank has pointed out that that poverty has taken a um, a dive in the wrong direction ever since the lockdowns. Again, a very predictable thing. Sure. Um, but I also think, and this is something I, I, I want to dig into because I think, um, you know, some people are afraid to talk about crony capitalism. If you love markets and you don't want to corrupt the word capitalism, I, I'm not so afraid of that because I, I think cronyism and corporatism is, is the enemy right now, um, the collusion of big government and big yeah. business. This is the enemy, and, and we should be very aggressive in making sure that people understand where that inequality is coming from, this this gaming of the system by insiders. I, I think we, you know, we're going to start to sound a little bit like Bernie, but um, um, it's it only goes so far because Bernie doesn't understand this either. He's voted for all of this garbage. Yeah, I think I think it's you know obviously it's nuanced, so it's a hard thing to get across in let's say a tweet. <laughs> um, but having the the broader discussions, it's very clear on you know where you have a free market and where you have this cronyism. And I'm glad you use words like cronyism or corporatism because there is no crony capitalism. There is no crony aspect to capitalism. It's just free choice and transparency with the guardrails of property rights around it. It's when you get the government coming in and tipping the scales and these government adjacent entities like the Fed um, you know, coming in and, and manipulating things so that the game is in fact rid for the wealthy and well-connected. It's, it's a bad thing. And it is frustrating for me as somebody who has been successful and also roots for the little guy to see some of the actions of the people who are, you know, at the, the very top of society and just seeing them not look, thinking through the perspective, like if you really do believe the pie is infinite and there's enough to go around, like, why are you acting like this? And it's, um, you know, it's an unfortunate aspect of human nature that our founding fathers tried to create a, a structure that would get around, but unfortunately that's been bastardized over time. So let's let's talk about the politics of this. And, and neither one of us, we've admitted that um, I think, tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but we've admitted that basically we thought to ourselves, the government would never do the crazy stuff that they've done. Circa, circa March, um, February of 2020, right. we, we didn't think any of this was... Um, I, didn't that, I didn't think the government would do it. I didn't think the people would go along with it. Like I thought if it was proposed, you would have these businesses and people going like, you can't do this. And the reality is if they had shut down everything, it wouldn't have lasted two weeks, Matt. Like if you had shut down Amazon's warehouse and Walmart and you know you hadn't had the Fed intervene in the market, this would have been over and done with within those 15 days. Yeah, but they had a guy in Washington. <laughs> I'm oh, reminded, that's, and that's the, the moral of our story. They had a guy. They had a guy in Washington. It's right out of Atlas Shrugged. But I'm I'm always go back to Mark Zuckerberg's testimony. I think it's three or four years ago now, 
where he was being berated by both Republicans and Democrats, but primarily Democrats, for not um, not managing speech content on his platform. And his response was, you know, we're right. And I have a very capable staff that would love to help you write that legislation. And I'm thinking, um, of course you would, because you know that your platform will at some point in a market be replaced by something better and freer and more open. So let's create all these barriers to entry by, by um, um, demanding that we have an army of censors and lawyers and, and, and political hacks to, to manage the system. That's, that's where we are with corporate America, I think. And, and I think it's, it's kind of a chicken and an egg thing, but it seems to me that things were just radically expedited um, starting with the lockdowns where, where corporations are now, um, e- they're either answering to Washington or they now control Washington. I don't know which it is. It's a, it's a, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, things have gotten radically worse. I agree with that. And I think it, part of it is that they saw sort of the symbiosis of what hap- what can happen if they work together and how that you know benefits them to the detriment of everyone else and how much power and money they were able to grab you know from this crisis and i also think that there are other influences and you know not to sound like a weird tinfoil hat person but you know these connections between business leaders and the world economic forum and the un where you know these nutty, nutty ideas are coming out and really being infiltrated you know, with broadly within corporate America. You know something like ESG, which is basically a corporate social credit score um, that is you know standing at odds with the fiduciary duties of the boards of directors to basically benefit the financial well-being of shareholders. You know the fact that that's been able to be you know infiltrated in such a quick um, amount of time, and there hasn't been, you know, the the relevant pushback. We're starting to get some at the the state level, but you know, that's also just shows the the level of how this has accelerated so quickly. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle, twenty four seven, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt, I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love liberty and look cool. You know, my theory is that ESG and um, this this corporate social credit score stuff um, where, you know, um, there's there's kind of a wokeness quotient to all of this and they, they spend more time telling us about um, the the ethnic and religious and skin color diversity of their of their people as opposed to whether or not they're actually providing us with a good product or service i think it's a distraction i think it's a great way to get the left and the right to fight with each other over this this sort of uh, cultural warrior stuff um, while they're fleecing us all and while they're while they're gutting um, the american system of free enterprise and, and in that sense, it seems to be working pretty well because um, I'm old enough to remember, you know, when Ron Paul was compla- complaining about the Federal Reserve, uh, followed by Wall- Occupy Wall Street, 
complaining about Wall Street bailouts. Um, simultaneously, the Tea Party movement, which I was part of, we were actually focused on some pretty fundamental flaws in the American political system, meaning, you know, bailing out the, the big guys at the expense of Main Street. Um, and, and now we're fighting about our pronouns. And I'm like, guys, this stuff over here matters. We need to pay attention to it. I have a oh. meme about this. So, you know, the, the boyfriend who's looking at the one girl and the other girl's like, oh, and yeah. I have that. I was like, you know, shit that doesn't matter. People, shit that matters. You know, and it, it, it's always like that. It's everybody's like, oh, my God, can you believe that this person's like, it doesn't matter. They're destroying the economic foundation of this country. Some of the, the goofiness that they do is stuff that you can undo, right? You undo it in the next legislature. You go in, you pass some laws. Like you debase the currency, you take away our economic freedoms. Like that's not coming back. Yeah. So like there's only so much time we have. And it is weird to me with all of the different marches and causes that people have, the things that really affects them foundationally the most, their economic freedom, their money. I mean, they're just literally losing value like every single day. Like nobody's out protesting in the streets about this. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me. In so a bad way. Yeah. And I, and I want to, I want to um, wrap up with, with a more hopeful conversation of, of, of how this might turn out because um, as, as a Tea Party organizer, I was, um, I actually held a party at my house in 2008. Um, I, um, this was pre Tea Party and we held a party and I think I called it the end of capitalism party because the Wall Street bailouts had just passed and, and both Republicans and Democrats, Nancy Pelosi and John Boehner, marched down to the House floor hand in hand saying, we must do this. Um, and I, I'm like, it's over. It's over. And of course, it wasn't over at all. And this, this Tea Party movement emerged that was at one point very much focused on fiscal responsibility and anti-bailouts. And, and a lot of those early Tea Partiers would tell me circa 2009 that they got involved um, and they would quote back what George, which George W. Bush said, um, I have to abandon free market capitalism to save it. Um, so I, I fast forward to the, the economic fallout and the human devastation caused by lockdowns and mandates and, and all of this, this really offensive stuff over the last couple of years. You know, we saw the Canadian truckers and we saw the, the, the farmers in the Netherlands. And um, we see Boris Johnson, who was a leader of, of lockdowns. He, 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 right along with, with Trump and just a few others, was, was the guy that said, we must do this. He's gone. And um, even the prime minister of New Zealand, who is the um, uh, celebrated leader of, of, of lockdowns and zero COVID, um, she she just abandoned her policies a couple days ago because her polls are in the tank. So I, I do feel like going back to James Carville's dictum that it's the economy stupid. I do feel like people are feeling the pain and people are looking for accountability and it will be lockdown politicians, whichever party they come from, that that hopefully are held accountable. But let's let's hope that their replacements are smarter than that. I mean, I hope so. And I think it depends on what area of the country you're in. You know, I'm in Illinois, obviously very blue state, but we did have a, a red governor before we had a blue governor, governor who is, by the way, completely stymied in his ability to do anything. 
but you know they completely manipulated the um, primary. They have a, a very weak candidate. And what happened, and this I, I'm, I know this was part of the whole scheme here, is the states that were hurting got all of this federal bailout money. And they used it to plug you know, holes in their, their deficits, their budget deficits temporarily, which we know is not going to be an ongoing thing. And so now I've got J.B. Pritzker on TV going, oh, hey, I balanced the budget. And I'm like, really? Like, you're going to say that? And then a bunch of people being like, oh, yeah, that's great. We're, Illinois is headed in the right direction. I'm like, OK, yeah, this, this is not going to change. And I think there are so many people that are just struggling to get by and they know things are bad, but they're only getting like little sound bites in and they don't fundamentally understand why. And they're going to blame the wrong reasons, unfortunately. It was, a, it was the greedy business's fault that we have runaway inflation, you know, silly stuff like that. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what we have to push against. And uh, um, you, you have been a heroic voice out there on this subject. And I really appreciate all the work you do. Tell everybody how they can find you and your book and all the stuff that you're doing. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me and also for being a, a like-minded voice out there. Um, we need many more of them. Uh, best way to find me until they get rid of me is on Twitter at Carol J.S. Roth. You probably have to turn on notifications because they like to throttle my account usually three out of every four weeks. Um, and yeah, you can pick up the war on small business. If you can support your local business bookseller, do it. If you can go to bookshop.org that, that fulfills from a local business bookseller, do it. It's capitalism. If you want to buy it on Amazon, you can do that too. Um, but I think that's, that's a big message in terms of being intentional on how you're spending your dollars and voting with your dollars that I don't think people are really that focused on right now. Okay, unfortunately, I don't think that our government's going to fix these problems anytime soon. So I hope to have you back sometime, and we'll we'll talk about the, the latest inflation numbers. Um, I don't think this this is just starting. Unfortunately, I unfortunately agree with you, and I think there is also a global contagion that's going to happen, and some things that um, people aren't really that focused on right now that may shift, you know, currencies to collapse and all kinds of fun stuff. So I'm sure we'll have many more government oriented things to discuss. Well, we got to keep talking until we can end on a positive note. So I love it. I love it. That's the goal. Okay. Thank you, Carol. Thanks. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.